Episode 72. The chairs on the street lash together like climbers towards the summit, blow around the town in smoke-laden thunderstorms. Parade Week. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. This week we wax nostalgic with a throwback recipe for tiramisu and a German drink called a Rattler. But then we delve into the creepy hole that is the Stephen Harris House, also known as the Shunned House. But first, I must thank our scenic Patreon subscribers. These dining in the outdoor folk are the potato salad, hot dogs, hamburgers, fire, tables, checkered tablecloths, ice drink, and ambrosia salad that is the picnic we call the Patuxent General, without whom we would merely have ants. So thank you. If you would like to become one of these grill-minded folk or simply want s'more, seek out our Patreon page or simply follow the link in the show notes. And please, pass the marshmallows. It is around this time of year in Germany that Spargel comes into season, and that brings Spargelfest, where local restaurants feature only items including Spargel, as we talked about in episode 16. Spargel Suppe is still my favorite, but Spargel with Trout and Spargel on Toast are both amazing. More often than not, I saw folks having a Rattler. I knew it then as a limonade, but the history of the drink goes like this, according to the Nita Beer Company. The Rattler owes its creation to a 1920s German innkeeper named Franz Kugler. As the story goes, a large group of cyclists riding through the Bavarian countryside arrived at this tavern, exhausted and parched for beer. Realizing he wouldn't have enough to quench the crowd's thirst, Franz needed a quick solution. To stretch his beer supply, he added sparkling lemonade to his kegs. Franz coined the drink Rattler, the German word for cyclist. There are several different types of Rattlers mixed beer drinks in Germany. As above, the most common is the addition of carbonated lemonade. Other variations include a Berliner Wies mit Schuss, which is a light white beer, mixed with a shot of sweet syrup. The three most common varieties of this delicious drink include green, a woodruff-flavored syrup, yellow with a shot of lemon syrup, and red with a shot of raspberry syrup. Still to this day, you can visit the beer garden at the Cooler Alm House while resting up from cycling. They keep a local fresh menu, just like the Gasthauses when I was there, and perhaps, in season, even Spargel. Try a Rattler. I bet you find it refreshing. As you may recall, we chatted about an expansive list of baked goods that I had to make to secure a baker position at Fellini's Pizza on Wickedon Street in Providence in episode 69. The tiramisu recipe that I used was a photocopy of a recipe from Gourmet Magazine that my mother gave me. Little did I know until later, this is what sealed the deal for the job. 
He never ordered it again because it was too pricey to make a profit. But I saw that man's eyes roll, and I knew what to make him on his birthday, tiramisu. It was also that day that he told me that I should give up singing. When I asked why, he said I reminded him too much of Janis Joplin, whom he knew in New York. He told me to stick to baking, and with that good advice, I sing for me and bake for others. That said, I think of him when I sing Mercedes-Benz. But this is not the interesting part. Let's talk about the history of tiramisu. AcademyTiramisu.com has this to say. The word tiramisu literally means pick-me-up. It comes from the Treviso dialect, tarame, su, Italianized into tiramisu in the later half of the 20th century. Historical records state the tiramisu originated in Treviso in 1800. It is said that this dessert was invented by a clever maitrice of the House of Pleasure in the center of Treviso. The Siora, who ran the premises, developed this aphrodisiac dessert to offer to customers at the end of the evening in order to reinvigorate them and solve the problems that they may have had with their conjugal duties on return to their wives. This would seem to be the origin of tiramisu, a natural Viagra from the 19th century, served to customers in a brothel. In the center of Treviso, an old inn of the period, the modern-day La Beccarie restaurant added this dessert to the menu. To support the legendary story, we have the ingredients of the tiramisu all nourishing and full of calories. Eggs, sugars, lady finger biscuits, marscapone, coffee and cocoa. Over the centuries, a veil of popular prudery hid the true origin of tiramisu. In fact, it is not mentioned in books until the 1980s. Evidence of the presence of this dessert over the last centuries on the lavish tables of home is given by our grandmothers and great-grandmothers. These ladies, over the age of 80, tell us that the skill and passion that they put into the preparation of this dessert for family and friends. Before electricity was widely available, along with early refrigerators, this dessert, which does not keep for very long, was only eaten and known in the province of Treviso and the surrounding areas. Some particular aspects passed down orally are unmistakable proof of the Veneto and Treviso origins of this dessert. The recipe comes from the Sabat du Din, a mix of egg yolk beaten together with sugar and commonly used by Treviso farmers as a restorative for newlyweds. You may ask, am I ever going to hear this recipe? Well, yes. Here you go. The recipe I used from Gourmet Magazine for tiramisu. We talk about the ingredients as we go along. For the syrup, combine water and sugar in a small saucepan. That's one-third of a cup of water and one-half a cup of sugar. Bring to a simmer, stirring occasionally to dissolve sugar. Remove from the heat and cool. Add the coffee and brandy, which is two-thirds cup espresso, brewed strong, and one-quarter cup brandy. For the filling, whip the cream with sugar and vanilla until soft peaks form. That is one and one-half cups heavy whipping cream and one-third cup sugar plus two teaspoons vanilla extract. Fold the cream into the softened mascarpone cheese, which is one pound of mascarpone cheese softened to room temperature. Assemble a layer of the ladyfingers or sponge cake slices in the bottom of a shallow two-quart baking dish or gratin pan. 
that's one half pound lady fingers. Sprinkle with half the syrup. Spread with half the filling. Repeat with remaining lady fingers, syrup, and filling, spreading the top smooth using a metal spatula. Cover with plastic wrap and refrigerate for up to 24 hours before serving. Immediately before serving, place cocoa in a fine strainer and shake a light coating on the surface. And enjoy. Today's location is the Stephen Harris House, also known as the Shunned House from the story of the same name by H.P. Lovecraft. Atlas Obscura describes the Stephen Harris House as a simple colonial house with a past haunted by death and madness. They also had this to say. The historic capital of Providence, Rhode Island, contains a number of placid neighborhoods that still bear the architectural mark of the colonial period in which the area was founded, and located on one of the city's oldest streets is the very possibly cursed Stephen Harris House. Having been heavily renovated since its construction in 1763, the slat-board abode is now a pale yellow, but a new paint job can't hide the building's mysterious history. Constructed by Providence merchant Stephen Harris over the site of a former French Huguenot burial yard, the new home seemed to bring nothing but ill fortune to Harris and his family. As soon as construction was finished, it's said that the merchant fell on hard financial times after losing a number of his trading vessels at sea. In addition to this material hardship, the Harris family saw the death of several children and the stillborn of even more. As life continued down its cursed path for the formerly successful couple, Harris's wife went mad and was confined to the upper floor of the dwelling. And local legend says that she could be heard to rant tirades in French, a language she did not know. Whether this is a matter of Huguenot haunting or simply the hardships of the colonial lifestyle, the current residents say that there has never been a live birth in the house since its construction. The local legend and eerie aura surrounding the site would even go on to inspire H.P. Lovecraft's 1937 short story, The Shunned House, which used a thinly-veiled account of the Harris story as a basis for an even more grotesque tale of supernatural horror. If you look up the history of the house in public records, you would find that in 1919 to 1920, H.P.'s Aunt Lillian lived as caretaker in the house. In 1924, H.P. Lovecraft writes the shunned house in which the house is described as decrepit. In a letter, Lovecraft wrote of seeing a vine-choked house in New Jersey that reminded him of the Babbitt or Harris house. He said, Later, its image came up again with renewed vividness, finally causing me to write a new horror story with its scene in Providence and with the Babbitt House as its basis. I suggest you visit the house itself and tell me what you think. But for right now, how about the beginning of The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft as part of our House on the Corner series? Sit back and enjoy. 
I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft, Chapter 1. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. From even the greatest of horrors, irony is seldom absent. Sometimes it enters directly into the composition of the events, while sometimes it relates only to the fortuitous position among persons and places. The latter sort is splendidly exemplified by the case in the ancient city of Providence, where in the late forties Edgar Allan Poe used to sojourn, often during his unsuccessful wooing of the gifted poetess Mrs. Whitman. Poe generally stopped at the mansion house on Benefit Street, the renamed Golden Ball Inn, whose roof had sheltered Washington, Jefferson, and Lafayette, and his favorite walk led northward along the same street to Mrs. Whitman's home and the neighboring hillside churchyard at St. John's, whose hidden expanse of 18th-century gravestones had for him a peculiar fascination. Now the irony is this, in the walk so many times repeated, the world's greatest master of the terrible and the bizarre was obliged to pass a particular house on the eastern side of the street, a dingy, antiquated structure perched on the abruptly rising hillside with a great unkempt yard dating back from the time when the region was partly open country. It does not appear that he ever wrote or spoke of it, nor is there any evidence that he even noticed it. And yet that house, to the two persons in possession of certain information, equals or outranks in horror the wildest fantasy of the genius who so often passed it unknowingly and stands starkly leering as a symbol of all that is unutterably hideous. The house was, and for that matter still is, of a kind to attract the attention of the curious. Originally a farm or semi-farm building, it followed the average New England colonial lines of the middle 18th century, the prosperous peaked roof sort, the two stories and dormerless attic, and with the Georgian doorway and interior paneling dictated by the progress of taste of the time. It faced south, with one gable end buried into the lower windows of the eastward-rising hill, and the other exposed to the foundations towards the street. Its construction, over a century and a half ago, had followed the grading and straightening of the road in that especial vicinity, for Benefit Street, 
at first called Back Street, was laid out as a lane winding amongst the graveyards of the first settlers, and straightened only when the removal of the bodies to the north burial ground made it decently possible to cut through the old family plots. At the start, the western wall had lain some twenty feet up a precipitous lawn from the roadway, but a winding of the street and about the time of the revolution sheared off most of the intervening space, exposing the foundations so that a brick basement wall had to be made, giving the deep cellar a street frontage with a door and two windows above ground, close to the new line of public travel. When the sidewalk was laid out about a century ago, the last of the intervening space was removed, and Poe, in his walks, must have seen only a sheer ascent of dull gray brick flush with the sidewalk and surmounting at a height of 10 feet by the antique shingled bulk of the house proper. Farm-like grounds extended back very deeply up the hill almost to Wheaton Street. The space south of the house, abutting on Benefit Street, was of course greatly above the existing sidewalk level, forming a terrace bonded by the high bank of the damp, mossy stone, pierced by a steep flight of narrow steps which led inward beyond canyon-like surfaces of the mangy lawn, roomy brick walls, and neglected gardens whose dismantled cement urns, tripods of knotty sticks, set off the weather-beaten front door with its broken fanlight, rotting iconic plasters, and wormy triangular pediment. What I heard in my youth about the shunned house was merely that people died there in alarmingly great numbers. That, I was told, why the original owners had moved out some twenty years after building the place. It was plainly unhealthy, perhaps because of the dampness and fungus growing in the cellar, the general sickish smell, the drafts in the hallways, or the quality of the well and pump water. These things were bad enough, and these were all the gained belief among the persons whom I knew. Only the notebooks from my antiquarian uncle revealed to me at length the darker, vaguer surmises which formed in the undercurrent of folklore among the old-time servants and humble folk, surmises which never traveled far and which were largely forgotten when Providence grew to be a metropolis with a shifting modern population. The general fact is that the house was never regarded by the solid part of the community as any real sense haunted, there were no widespread tales of rattling chains, cold currents of air, extinguished lights, or faces at the window. Extremists sometimes said that the house was unlucky, but that was as far as they went. What was really beyond dispute is that a frightening proportion of persons died there, or more accurately, had died there, since after some peculiar happenings over sixty years ago, the building had become deserted, through the sheer impossibility of renting it. These persons were not at all cut off suddenly by any one cause. Rather did it seem that their vitality was insidiously sapped, so that each one died the sooner from whatever tendency to weakness they may have naturally had. And those who did not die displayed in varying degree a type of anemia or consumption, and sometimes a decline of mental faculties, which spoke ill of the salubriousness of the building. Neighboring houses, it must be added, seemed entirely free from this noxious quality. This much I knew before my insistent questioning led my uncle to show me the notes, which finally embarked us both on our hideous investigation. 
In my childhood, the shunned house was vacant, with barren, gnarled, and terrible old trees, long, queerly pale grass, and nightmarishly misshapen weeds on the high terraced yard where the birds never lingered. We boys used to overrun the place, and I can still recall my youthful terror, not only at my morbid strangeness of the sinister vegetation, but at the eldritch atmosphere and odor of the dilapidated house, whose unlocked front door was often entered in quest of shutters. The small pane windows were largely broken, and the nameless air of desolation hung around the precarious paneling. Shaky interior shutters, peeling wallpaper, falling plaster, rickety staircases, and such fragments of battered furniture as still remained. The dust and cobwebs added their touch of the fearful. And brave indeed was the boy who was voluntarily ascend to the ladder in the attic a vastly raftered length, lighted only by the small blinking windows in the gable ends, and filled with a massed wreckage of chests, chairs, and spinning wheels, which infinite yards of deposit had shrouded and festooned into monstrous and hellish shapes. But after all, the attic was not the most terrible part of the house. It was the dank, humid cellar, even though it was wholly above ground on the street side, with only a thin door and window-pierced brick wall to separate it from the busy sidewalk. We scarcely knew whether to haunt it in spectral fascination or to shun it for the sake of our souls and our sanity. For one thing, the bad odor of the house was strongest there, and for another thing, we did not like the white fungus growths which occasionally sprang up in the summer weather on the hard earth floor. Those fungi, grotesquely like the vegetation in the yard outside, were truly horrible in their outlines, detestable parodies of toadstools and Indian pipes, whose like we had never seen in any other situation. They rotted quickly, and at one stage became slightly phosphorescent, so that the nocturnal passers-by sometimes spoke of witch-fires glowing behind the broken panes of the foretold spreading windows. We never, even in our wildest Halloween moods, visited this cellar by night. But in some of our daytime visits, could detect the phosphorescence, especially when the day was dark and wet. There was also a subtler thing we thought we had detected, a very strange thing, which was, however, merely suggestive at most. I refer to a sort of cloudy whitish pattern on the dirt floor, a vague shifting deposit of mold or nitra which we sometimes thought we could trace amongst the sparse fungus growths near the huge fireplace of the basement kitchen. Once in a while it struck us that this patch bore an uncanny resemblance to a doubled-up human figure. Though generally no such kinship existed, and often there was no whitish deposit whatsoever. On a certain rainy afternoon, when this illusion seemed phenomenally strong, and when, in addition, I had fancied I glimpsed a kind of thin, yellowish, shimmering exultation rising from the nitrous pattern toward the yawning fireplace, I spoke to my uncle about the matter. He smiled at this odd conceit, but it seemed that his smile was tinged with reminiscence. Later, I heard that a similar notion entered into some wild ancient tales of the common folk, a notion likewise alluding to ghoulish, wolfish shapes taken by smoke from the great chimney, and queer contours assumed by certain of the sinuous tree roots that thrust their way into the cellar through the loose foundation stones. Thank you.
Thank you once again for joining us today at the Patuxent General. If you would like to reach out with a question, suggestion, or comment on the episode, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. Something for Posterity Production, pre-recorded in Patuxent.